coming up, six of the best questions from you from this morning's email deluge, live from the palatial fat cave. Yes! I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au, the place where Australian new car buyers save thousands off their next new cars. Hit me up on the website for that. Now, Q&A today, okay, I've got six excellent questions all sorted out. These come from Warren Carey, Anthony Trapman, Andrew McGowan, Brod Bins, Laurie Howell and Dennis O'Flynn. So that would be the half dozen, the dirty half dozen of questions from you. And if we get a chance as well, if there's still time at the end, I might even throw in a bonus question because that's, hey, just the kind of guy I am. Let's kick off right now, though, with Warren Carey, who says, a mate who comes to me for all tech stuff has a 2013-14 Hyundai i40 and the Bluetooth just stopped working. Hyundai in Noosa updated the firmware yesterday without luck. It will not discover any devices. So Houston, that's a problem. They said uh, they've told him that it will be a thousand bucks to replace the head unit completely. One feature stops working and it's a grand. That's way over the top to me, says Warren. It appears this is a pretty common failure and many others have reported the issues online across most of the Hyundai range worldwide. Warren goes on and says, I have a 2016 Santa Fe Highlander and while I love the car, the Bluetooth has never worked well. From day one, it's been crappy. Crappy's not good, is it? And they have done many updates to try and fix the call quality without luck. He says, I checked with my local Hyundai dealer about the i40 issue and they say the head unit has three years warranty only in a car they sold that comes with a five-year warranty. While the i40 is out of warranty, would this be considered under the ACCC rules for warranties against defects? I'm perplexed why Hyundai wouldn't issue a defect notice when so many people appear to have issues with Bluetooth. That's from Warren Carey. He's the technical service, services manager sorry, at Micro Thin Industries, Proprietary Limited. Micro Thin Industries. I'm not sure I agree with that. I don't know what they do, but it is at odds with my upcoming book, Get Fat. New York Times bestseller, I'm sure. Get fat, how to gain weight and keep it on. And I guess I'll have to battle those bastards at micro-thin industries. Anyway, just to deal with this issue, shall we? Bluetooth is one of the most problematic issues with modern cars, all right? And this is simply because it's a bit of an afterthought. It's not part of the core design of the vehicle at all. It's nearly always supplied by some third party. And the integration is kind of dodgy because I get the feeling like the manufacturer is always trying to talk the third party supplier of the Bluetooth device, the head unit and the underlying tech. I get the feeling like manufacturers are always trying to screw them down on price and they get to a point where they're like a couple that's about to divorce and the company's supplying their gear goes, yeah, whatever. And they kind of do a half-assed job. And I don't think Hyundai's alone here, but I know there are problems across the automotive genre broadly about all of this. The fact is, however, that there is a legislated guarantee of acceptable quality. And if you want to know more about that here in Australia, you just Google ACCC consumer guarantees and then research to your heart's content. 
And I'd suggest that part of acceptable quality means that whatever you buy has to function properly as advertised and it has to be reasonably durable. And these legislated provisions exist despite whatever the warranty the manufacturer gives you. So the ACCC specifically will not consider the duration of the warranty when it comes to whether or not there's a breach of an acceptable quality guarantee. What they're going to look at is what's a reasonable expectation for the buyer of that kind of product and has it been met by the underlying device. And there are very severe incentives on the negative side. If we're talking the carrot and the stick, this is in the domain of the stick, okay? The stick is out if the device cannot meet those expectations. Now, if you are in this position like Warren's made over here, what you've got to do is you've got to go back to the dealer who sold you the vehicle and you've got to start sounding like an informed consumer. And that means you've got to say this, sorry, I don't care what the warranty is. This is a breach of the acceptable, uh, the acceptable quality guarantee and you must make it right. And you have to put it in those terms. And I'd suggest rather than get into that finger in the chest moment, which nobody really wants, put everything in writing. And if the dealer is not going to come to the party, contact Hyundai directly. Because my experience of Hyundai in a direct contact format is that they are better than many dealers. Service quality varies widely across dealers, all right? So if you're dealing with a dud dealer, always go to the manufacturer because most manufacturers, with some notable exceptions, are highly motivated to keep you sweet, all right? So you'll probably get a better deal from them. And if you don't, then you've got to go down that formal pathway of go to the ACCC's website and then find their formal complaint letter tool generator. Use that, generate a formal complaint, Make sure you tell the dealer that you will lodge a formal complaint with the ACCC if your demand is not met. And let's face it, it's not unreasonable. So no, all other things being equal, provided Warren's mate hasn't just, uh, you know, omitted conveniently to mention that he spilled four and a half litres of coffee down the guts of the head unit one day, provided that's not the source of the fault, owner abuse, which is not covered by all of this legislation, if it is just one of those dodgy component things, then the dealer, followed by the car maker, they have to get together and get into a little huddle and fix the problem. All right, now here is the next question, right? Just a quick question. What instigates a recall on motor vehicles? I had a Gen 4 Subaru Liberty and the fuel pump had problems, which I got fixed and later found out that there was a recall to rectify the faulty problem. I now have a Gen 5 Liberty and strangely enough, I have the same problem. Faulty connection, fried electrics and all the fun stuff that goes with it. So at least he's still got a sense of humour. That's always nice. Anyhow, I'm midway through fixing it and can't be bothered with the complete stuff around dealership is giving me. So he's getting mucked around, allegedly. Get the car towed to them, have them assess the problem. When the back and forth with Subaru and three months later, still nothing. So I can sense a little bit of frustration just seeping through into this message. He says, it's going to end up costing me three or 400 bucks to get it sorted. So no big deal. And this is the case so many times, right? It's not the money. It's the inconvenience, yeah? 
it's more for the sake of curiosity about how recalls are started. And I'm still trying to consider to contact Subaru's customer service to let them know of the potential fault. But given the relatively low cost of the repair, I'm just getting it done. That's from Anthony. All right. Now, what I'd say in relation to recalls is a couple of things. Okay. Recalls in Australia only ever happen as a consequence of safety defects or probable safety defects. And generally, this is a system that works very well. It's an honor system, you know, manufacturers get out in front of the problem generally, they issue a recall, it's listed on the ACCC's recalls website, which is productsafety.gov.au. But if you also Google recalls.gov.au, that will redirect you there as well. So just recalls.gov.au, and then you can go for cars and just search through and see whatever recalls have been issued. If you own the car, they'll write to you when there's a recall. And if you buy a second-hand car, always contact the manufacturer with the VIN code and tell them you've bought the car because that will get you on the their database so that if they subsequently issue a recall, they will be able to notify you direct. So that's always nice. Now, I'd suggest that recalls are an honour system in Australia. Basically, there are very few mandatory recalls that are instigated by the regulator, the ACCC. Most recalls are issued by the manufacturer. They're voluntary recalls. And they go up on that website. And I know every time there's a, a publication of a story about a recall, the manufacturer takes a bit of a reputational hit because the implication is that's a bit of a shitbox. They're recalling 35,000 cars or something. And it's perceived as being a big deal. Whereas, in fact, I think you should change how you think about those recalls because basically it is the manufacturer getting out in front of a potential problem and solving it. And even if 35,000 cars get recalled, the bottom line is they're the cars that have been identified as potentially having some defect and they're not really all defective, right? It might only be a very low failure rate, but it's important to get them done because, hey, Takata airbags, fire recalls are very common, brake defects, you know, suspension or steering components that just fail. They're all very common recall problems and you really don't want to be in ignorance driving around with a ticking time bomb. So basically, that is how the recall system works. Question number three, I think we're up for now. This is from Anthony Trapman, and this is a really good question too. He says, you talk a lot about the BS from car salespeople, and I agree. I also believe that their BS is self-interest or very much a vested interest. As I grew up, I heard of white lies and fibs, but some BS may not have untruths within it, yet still be intended to give a misleading message. So I use a word that I created, I love this, to describe this style of communication, vested interest bullshit or vibs. I love it. You know, and I kind of like the whole vested interest bullshit vibs thing. But if you really want to drill down taxonomically into that, syntactically into that, I think you'd find it's a redundancy because bullshit is all about vested interests. And I think you really should drill down into it because, let's face it, it's one of the most salient differentiating characteristics of modern society. And if you're interested in this, definitely get Harry G. Frankfurt's book, 
which is called simply On Bullshit. He's a professor of philosophy, I think, at Princeton University, professor of philosophy emeritus at Princeton. And it's the only known academic textbook I can think of on this pressing issue for modern society. It's a tiny little book about passport size, you know, and it's only 67 pages long. It's really just an essay from one of the smartest guys I've ever listened to about this. Now, in summary, the thing about bullshit is everyone agrees that there's so much of it in society, right? But with a gun to your head, you know, Glock 17 pressed maliciously in your head, certain vengeful gleam in the eye from the guy holding it, he says, tell me what bullshit actually is. Can you do that? Because I'd suggest most people can't. So what is it, right? What is the difference between bullshit and lies? Because I'd think that most people in gun at the head would say bullshit's just lies mate right but it's not okay bullshit is far more insidious than just a case of someone lying to you because lies are simple you can even respect the liar because the liar has a simple mission okay which is to misrepresent the truth or what the liar believes the truth to be so he's actively misrepresenting the truth, whereas the bullshitter is able to dine on a much broader smorgasbord of facts, he's able to use any combination of lies over here and truth over here and just combine them. And what he's combining them for is self-interest, okay? And this is why it's so friggin' hard to take a bullshitter on. Because if you say, ah, yeah, but that's bullshit, they'll respond, typically the argumentative gambit there, the response, the attempt to repudiate your position is, ah, yes, but I said that and it's true, right? And it is. It's just a selective part of the truth that serves the bullshitter's self-interest, often served up, you know, wrapped in prosciutto and on a bed of lies as well. But it's really difficult to take the bullshitter on, I think you'd agree. And there is so much of it. And at least if you are armed with this information about what bullshit actually is, you can then use it like a ceramic plate down the front of your vest when you go to a meeting with the boss or a doctor or a politician or your accountant or whomever, your significant other. And when they start to bullshit you, you at least have something to deflect it back. Now, for example, You know, if you're a bloke, you've been in this terrible position where some significant other says to you, does this dress make my ass look fat? And you respond, no, which is quite truthful, okay? You are telling the truth regardless of the, you know, the state of the partner, regardless of the physiology of the partner. You are telling the truth, but you are also bullshitting if you are looking at a fat ass because it's not the dress, making my ass look fat, is it? It's the ass. And that essentially is what bullshit really is. So it's not only, it's it's not even just an evil thing. Sometimes it's a survival mechanism. Let's move on. Okay, this is from Broad Bins. And I just discovered that Broad Bins went to school with me. Yes. The mighty James Roos Agricultural High School in Carlingford in the knee of Sid. R.I.P. James Hoskins. He was the principal when we were there. He's the only principal of a school I, I know of who was ever loved by everyone. Even when he sent me to go and get the cane for being the friggin' class clown. Go figure. I still loved him. He was just that kind of guy that you had to respect. Anyway, 
Broad says, I've just purchased an MY19 Mitsubishi Triton GLS Auto in diamond white with tow bar for all intents and purposes brand new. It had 15 kilometres on it. Usual retail, $45,990, bucks for the premium paint plus whatever for the tow bar. I uh, drive this one away for 40 grand on the nose. Sounds like a bargain to me, so that's nice. I think I did well implementing some of the obvious strategies, plus some strategies not so obvious that you often point out. Now, look, on my YouTube channel, I've got a, a vast array of uh, strategies for diffusing the usual dealership bullshit and getting a better deal for you. So you could start with my video, top 10 ways to beat a car dealer and just move on from there. If you're interested, I'll put a link up there if I remember in edit. Okay, so... Broad goes on and says, there appears to be a lot of these types of vehicles online, dealer demos, effectively undriven, selling below the already discounted run-out price. I'm aware that the dealership had taken ownership of the vehicle off-plan, or whatever the term is, and the warranty has effectively started on that date. So yeah, he's quite correct there. The warranty with a demonstrator, even one of these sort of never-driven demonstrators, kicks off on the date of the first registration. So you do trade that off if you buy one of those vehicles. But hey, if it's a seven-year warranty and you lose a couple of months, who cares? Broad goes on and says, uh, off-plan, blah, 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 six years and ten months worth of balance remaining on the warranty doesn't concern me. I have had six years of trouble three, uh, trouble three and trouble free motoring from a Triton GLXR manual and am confident in the brand. Do you see any pitfalls in buying vehicles this way? They appear to be excess stock at time of the new model landing, but not inferior in any way. Some might be unpopular colours, but generally fine. I bought my GLXR this way at about 45k retail, drove it away for 32 Another bit of a bargain there, I think you'd agree. Huge savings, albeit 12 months superseded. Your thoughts would be appreciated. Okay, so there's two kinds of demonstrators, all right? There's the demonstrator that actually is used to demonstrate the product. Now, sometimes that is demonstrate the product to intending purchasers at that dealership, and sometimes it's to demonstrate the product to people like me, you know, motoring journalists or ambassadors or whatever. Uh, football teams are a classic for this. They're really good at abusing those vehicles. If carmaker A sponsors football team B, then the members of football team B typically drive around in supplied cars from carmaker A. And they treat them like crap, generally, bring them back in very bad condition, often, you know, curbed and crashed and whatever else. And then those vehicles get fixed up to the extent that they are fix-upable and they get sold onto the dealer network and then sold as demonstrators. That's category A. And you have to be very careful with category A of demonstrators. Category B is a completely different fish, kettle of fish, right? So what happens is the car maker wants to bump up its sales figures in a particular month, all right? They might be having a slack month and they don't want to be appearing to be dropping the ball at the end of the month when the sales figures are released. So they send out a covert email to their dealer network and they say, hey, you guys, register 20 10, 15, 30, 40, 50, depends on the size of the size of the dealership. They just go, register these cars and we'll give you a backhander to sell them as demonstrators. And it's really just a way for car makers in a short-term strategy to game the sales figures. And these cars are already kind of in stock. They just get registered 
And then they just sit there waiting for a buyer. So you come along and buy it. You think you're getting a great deal, and you are, because the manufacturer is paying that backhander to the dealer, okay? And then that's a fairly risk-free demonstrator, I'd suggest. But if it's got more than about 100 Ks on it, 100 kilometres, that is, I would be reluctant to treat the demonstrator in the manner of that second category of demonstrator. See, if you buy the first category of demonstrator, what you must do is you must confirm that it has not been crashed or thrashed because many of those are, and you don't want one of those because warranty does not cover abuse, even if the dudes who abused it owned the vehicle or at least had access to that vehicle prior to you. Let's go back to the questions. This one is from Laurie Howell, who said, just had our Kia diesel Sorrento in for its service and the dealership rang up saying the car has carbon deposits in its upper cylinders and did I want to fix it? Not trusting anything a car dealership says, as I do, not a bad policy. It's always bullshit o'clock up on the wall, isn't it? Laurie said no, since he says, I thought it sounded like just another one of those bullshit services they offer that cost plenty but achieve nothing. Besides which, the car does plenty of long freeway running at high speeds. So by my reckoning, it shouldn't be overly prone to such problems. However, not being an expert on diesel engines, I thought that I should at least consult Mr. Google and check if such deposits are a known problem. And apparently it seems they are. So a couple of questions. How would the dealership have had any idea there were carbon deposits? Would there be any obvious external signs without removing a manifold or similar? There are certainly no obvious signs when driving the car. All right, so just to answer that one. Carbon deposits do happen. If there are faulty PCV, which is positive crankcase ventilation, or EGR systems, exhaust gas recirculation, both of those items, crankcase ventilation, which is often pretty deep in atomized lubricating oil from the sump, okay, so that gets sucked into the inlet system so that it does not vent to atmosphere for us all to breathe and get cancer or, you know, some other sort of cardiopulmonary disease, and exhaust gas recirculation, which people think is a bad thing, but actually it's a really good thing for fuel efficiency because it stops those um, pumping losses by maintaining the volume without having a whole bunch of fresh air going in there. So, EGR is a good thing, generally. All right. But if these systems malfunction, they can lead to carbonisation of the inlet plumbing, not so much the upper cylinder. And I think Laurie may have misinterpreted or the dealership's advice or the dealership may have given him bad advice, okay? It's usually clogging up of the inlet tract with these carbonised oil deposits. It's the slippery oil baked on by the EGR that can give your inlet tract atherosclerosis, right? So... What a dealership can do is just put like an endoscopy camera down the guts of the inlet track and have a look around. It's got a light and a camera. They have a little look on a monitor and they go, hey, carbonisation. So they can see it. There's no guarantee that the dealership actually has done this, however. So let us move on. Uh, Laurie goes on and says, assuming such deposits exist, they do, can they actually harm the vehicle in any way? Okay, so they don't necessarily harm the vehicle, but what they do is they restrict over time when that stuff builds up. It restricts the air inlet flow, and basically that restricts your ultimate performance. So you pull out to overtake a truck, and all of a sudden, you got nothing. So 
in normal sort of driving where you're not using the maximum output of the engine, you might not notice this kind of thing build up because you can always just give the throttle a bit more of a nudge. I know it's not a throttle in a diesel, it's an accelerator, okay, but the throttle, that pedal down there on the right, you can give that a bit of a nudge and increase the accelerator position and that'll give you the performance you need. But had you cleaned out the inlet track, you wouldn't need quite as much accelerator displacement to do the job. So not a fatal flaw, but it can impact your ultimate engine performance. Number three, if so, aside from pulling bits of the engine apart and manually cleaning the carbon off, what other options are there for removing it? Well, that's a good question too, because I wouldn't want that sort of problem building up and building up and building up. I'd want to nudge it before it got to a critical performance limitation. And my understanding is that they can clean that stuff uh, chemically without disassembling the entire inlet tract. So that's always good if they can do that. I guess it depends on the severity of the problem. Finally, Laurie says, is the carbon deposits in the engine issue a known service department ripoff in the industry? Just don't want to go shelling out additional dough if the problem is fictional or of little consequence. And you know what? I think that's fair enough too. What I would do in that case is I'd get the service done and decline politely in the first instance to get this done unexpectedly. Just say, I don't have the budget for that at the moment. I'm going to go and just check it out and I might come back to you in a few weeks because it's not mission critical, all right? And then I would go to an independent mechanic, maybe one whom I trusted, and I'd get them to shove the little inspection camera down wherever and have a little poke around and just let you know what they think of the state of the inlet plumbing. So if you do that and the guy who's, you know, your trusted mechanic says, yeah, it is, then you can get a quote from him to repair the problem, get a quote from the dealer and then see whose quote you like the best. Don't just do it on price though. Do it also on some sort of objective evaluation of who you think is going to do a better job. Dennis O'Flynn now. He says, last week I had to call the NRMA, that's the Motorists Association in New South Wales, to purchase a new battery for my 2015 Subaru Outback. He says, I can't really whinge. It'll be five years old on Christmas Day. Uh, no factory closed down for two weeks like in Australia. So, yes, I guess so. But realistically, they just delivered it then. Had not appreciated it was a deep cycle battery, as he explained, the price jump compared to a conventional lead acid type. He reckons I had purchased from, had I purchased from Subaru, sorry, it would have cost nearly double that. Long retired now, started off as a PMG Teco. Remember them? Maintaining telephone exchange battery rooms with open bath batteries in those days, a wooden box lined with lead, but the plates hanging. But I digress. He says, I knew a bit about batteries back then. I reckon there will be a few people complaining when their stop-start cars need a new battery, mainly due to the cost. In my instance, the local NRMA guy had to order a new one in as it was not in stock. Whilst a standard new battery will get you out of trouble if needed in the back of Burke, unless the stop-start can be turned off permanently, the lead-acid battery won't last long and then they really will whinge. So yeah, I kind of agree with that as well. You know, this is the great fraud of engine stop-start systems. To me, the automatic stop-start systems that shut the engine down at the red lights, right, and then get you going again when it notices you lifting off the brake, and you think, yes, I'm saving fuel. And realistically, you are saving bugger all fuel, right? 
And then three or four years later, your battery is cactus and you get a bill for like 600 bucks to replace the battery when it might have been 250 or something to replace a conventional battery. I'd suggest that's going to leave a bad taste in your mouth and also erode most of the financial benefit of whatever fuel saving you might have enjoyed by virtue of that stop-start system in the time it has operated. So in, in the context of saving you money, that system really is a fraud and it so undermines the refinement of the driving process. So if you've got a prestige car with that, it really does suck, or even just a nice mainstream car. Now, I looked into this as well. The difference between the batteries is that the battery in a stop-start sort of car has to draw more current for longer to keep the systems running when the engine is shut down at the lights, right? That makes sense. And to do that, it has to be more of a deep cycle style of battery. Now, there are two kinds of lead-acid batteries, okay? There's deep cycle and cold cranking. And cold cranking batteries, like here's their capacity, they like to be discharged like this. Start up the engine, recharge. Start up the engine, recharge. Start up the engine, re recharge. If you run them flat right down to here, you kill them. Deep cycle batteries, they're constructed differently internally. They like being cycled like down to here to empty, back up, full charge, down to here, back up, repeat like that. They're okay with that. So you get cold cranking batteries in conventional cars without stop start. And you typically see deep cycle batteries in things that are designed to run down like golf carts and stuff like that, where it's going to be a long time between recharges. Okay. And the difference internally is the size of the lead plates, the uh, thickness of the lead plates, the spacing between them and the density of the foamy sort of material in between the plates. And that just changes the operational characteristics. Deep cycles are more expensive in part because of the materials, but also in part because of economies of scale. They just don't make as many deep start batteries. Okay, so moving on right now, let's do that bonus question. If you don't mind hanging around, we'll do one bonus question as well. This is from Joshua Connell, who says, Hi, I'm in the market for a dual cab ute, but don't want to spend any more than 25 grand. I am not sure which brand or year to go with. There are so many options. And yes, I agree with that totally as well. There's so many options, but if you rule out a lot of the unreliable ones, I kind of recommend Triton and BT50, in part because of the value equation, but also because of customer support. And I know there is a cloud hanging over Mazda right now in the context of its customer support and the allegations against them with the pending court case by the ACCC. BT50 is basically a discount ranger. They're built in the same factory in Thailand and essentially there's just hair and makeup kind of differences between them. But Triton is the one I would look at and I'd specifically look at the current shape Triton. Previous shape Triton was a little bit old and frankly not that good but the new one was a real step up. New powertrain, new platform, basically knew everything. They knew that the outgoing Triton back then in 2014 or 2015, whatever it was, was a bit of a POS, frankly, and then they upgraded it. So that's nice. Anyway, I had a little bit of a look on Redbook, which is an excellent source of research for 
new cars as well as used car values. Redbook.com.au. It's where I get my trade-in values from and all that stuff. So you can go there. You can search their database for free. Just make sure you are using the free research tab, which would be... um, you know, not only don't go for the valuation certificates. Valuation certificates at Red Book are going to cost you money, but research is free, so you can use that. And I'm just having a look here at the Top Whack 2015 Triton Dual Cab, which would be the GLS MQ Auto 4x4 MY16 Double Cab, but it was released in 2015. And Red Book is telling me that the trade-in price for that vehicle is between 19500 and 22100 and the private sale price, which you could expect to pay if you just look in the classifieds, like car sales or something, 23800 to 26400 So I'd suggest you could find uh, an average sort of condition Triton from 2015, the GLS model, with all the fruit for about, you know, with about uh, 100,000 Ks. The average Ks for that sort of age at uh, 2015 will be 80,000 to 120. And it was a 24,000, sorry, $44,000 vehicle, brand new. You could pick it up today for about 25, which doesn't sound like a bad deal for me. I'd like you to thank you for hanging around for this quasi-live broadcast. I've changed some of the settings and hopefully this is a bit higher quality this time. A few of you said you didn't like Nostril Cam, which was the previous setup, the camera two just here. So I've raised it up. So you're not looking at, you know, what I had for breakfast via my nasal sinus cavities or something. So there's that. Anyway, thanks for hanging around for the duration of this quasi live stream. If you're interested in the upcoming live streams, I reckon it's going to take about two weeks to get that out of the blocks. I've just figured out how to get the phone line over there into the deck just over here so that I can take your calls live and interact with you, which I'm really looking forward to do. So that is a final part of the puzzle that's been solved. Just want to get a bit better at the technicalities here and switching this and that. But anyway, that's our Q&A for this Friday. Thank you very much for watching. 